0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating.
0: It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round you know, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do
1: I have someone understand? Look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet in Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Meet me in the kitchen. What are we going?
1: Our history,
2: Share
1: it
0: on.
2: To write a biography is to plead with ghosts to move in so you can study them. That's how John Birdsall describes the process of pulling together his new book, The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard. This book isn't the first biography on Beard, but it is the only one that centers his queerness, which he hid from the public throughout his entire career. The book offers readers a deeper understanding of not only Beard and his life, but the American food culture that he shaped, a culture that, as it turns out, is deeply and inextricably rooted in queerness, intimacy, and pleasure. John treated James Beard's life and his few artifacts with so much care. You'll hear it in his voice, in the way that he chooses his words. He somehow speaks into reality things that I've known or felt, but not been able to name. This conversation was such a gift. I'm really grateful to pass it along to you. So, The first piece of yours that I read years before I started this podcast was your Lucky Peach piece um, of a similar subject called America, Your Food is So Gay. Yes. Um, And that came out, you know, seven years ago now. Right, Um, right.
3: It was, yeah, late uh, 2013.
2: Yeah, and I remember reading it before anyone was really talking about this intersection that we both work at of queerness and food. And mm-hmm. how did that essay come about in a time when I, I feel like these conversations weren't happening in the same, in the same way?
3: Right. These conversations weren't happening, um, but other conversations were happening. And um, I realize a bit in retrospect that the, sort of conversations that were really uppermost in food in 2013 were, um, were really kind of, kind of bothering me, um, you know, making me angry. Um, so, you know, back then it was a time of really, uh, a celebration of, um, restaurant chefs in a really narrow lane. Um, and, I really loved Lucky Peach which at that time was just a print quarterly a print magazine but it was really you know a document of of restaurant culture of chef culture and the conversation at that time was was really centered on you know really like cis male straight chefs um mostly white and and so you know they were having all kinds of like vigorous kitchen Kitchen conversations and food culture conversations, um, but not only did did they leave out women primarily, um, but sort of queer conversations were not happening. There was really not much of an acknowledgement that LGBTQ people were kind of major presences in professional kitchens. So I found out that Lucky Peach, which at that time was um, would, you know, each kind of quarterly issue had a theme. And the theme for that issue was uh, gender. And I think that issue came came about because, you know, Lucky Peach had, had been around for a couple of years, and it had received a fair number of critiques that it, that it really kind of overlooked women. But, you know, I hadn't heard any conversations about it kind of overlooking, ignoring, erasing the contributions of queer people in the kitchen. Um, And so, yeah, so I just kind of had this idea to write something about, you know, what I saw as a major sort of strain of American cooking in the kind of mid to late 20th century, which was that this kind of trio of gay men Um, who were very influential in American cooking, uh, James Beard, Craig Claiborne, and Richard Olney um, were gay, but, you know, were kind of forced to live within the very complicated codes of the time um, and not really be able to express queerness. So all this was kind of bubbling up in me. You know, I had been a restaurant cook myself for for about 17 years and had really just kind of accepted my (laughs) kind of, second class status as being uh, being queer in kitchens, um, right. and so I had a lot of resentment to kind of deal with
2: yeah yeah you you write in that piece and then also in the introduction to the book about um your gay uncles, your neighbors um,
3: <laughs> right.
2: and just like this beautiful description of <laughs> um, a burger, which sounded amazing. And so there's this thing that I imagine as a kid you weren't able to to put words to, like around queer sensibility and food and I, I guess I'm wondering like when twofold, like when you became aware or started kind of like having an aesthetic sense of that idea, um, and maybe it was with that burger um, well, let's just start there. Yeah. I guess uh, this idea of queer food as being something real, when do you have memories around that?
3: Yeah. Um, well, you know, first of all, my, my, my gay uncles, um, um, you know, Pat and Lou, I mean, I call them my uncles. They're not, 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 blood uncles, but they were, they, they helped raise me. Um, you know, they, you know, I grew up in a, suburb of San Francisco, pretty conservative suburb. Um, uh, and my parents were, were really close friends with, with Pat and Lou. Um, and, you know, that was sort of a risky and rebellious thing to have done in our neighborhood in the you know, late 1960s. Um, Because they were, they were in some way outcasts in the neighborhood because they lived together as essentially, you know, a married couple. Um, And I, you know, I was too young to really, you know, realize much about, about my own queerness um, then when I knew them. Um, And really... I started thinking about those issues much later. So after I came out, um, I began cooking professionally. Uh, And this was in like the mid 1980s when I got my first restaurant job in San Francisco. Um, Started cooking, um, but I knew that I wanted to write and I thought that I would, you know, cook professionally for a year, kind of learn all this great stuff um, and then leave and you know, become a food writer, write about it. Uh, I ended up staying in the kitchen for, you know, as I said, like 17 years. So it was hard, it was hard to leave the kitchen. There was so much about it that I loved. Um, but while I was, while I was cooking, so in the late 1980s, San Francisco had uh, a few LGBTQ kind of weekly, weekly papers. And so I started writing for one of those papers called The Sentinel, um, which was a really great publication Um, and in, in part because there was um, an editor there who really wanted to do arts coverage, you know, LGBTQ weeklies at the time were great, but they were more kind of news focused and the kind of entertainment part would be about, you know, like reviews of porno movies and mm-hmm. um, you know something like that, which was great, but it didn't, it didn't really kind of describe the sort of you know life that was happening um you know in the city. Um, so this editor asked me to write about food. I would expressed interest in, you know, maybe being like a restaurant critic for the, for this, for, for the Sentinel. Um, and so, um, he kind of invited me to, to do that and he kind of tasked me with this idea of, you know, is there something, you know, distinctively queer about food? Is there, is there a gay sensibility in food and what, what would that look like? What would that taste like? Um, And so, you know, I wrote occasional pieces. I did do restaurant reviews and I wrote some features about food um, for the Sentinel. And that question really kind of nagged at me. And I I knew from my own experience, since I was cooking and I knew a lot of um, queer people who were also cooks, um, home cooks as well as restaurant cooks. I I knew that there was something different about us. I knew that there was something different about the food that we cooked, about the way that we got together to eat, about the the kind of you know weight of of like family experience. You know, um, a lot of us had you know really had to leave the places where where we grew up um, in order to to be authentic, and we kind of migrated to places where it felt safe or safer to be gay and expressive. And we we used food in that life that we built for ourselves. Um, and so I wasn't a skilled enough writer to be able to really express that at the time. And it was only later that I kind of made this connection to the food that my, you know, my childhood uncles, Pat and Lou, um, ate and celebrated. And I just kept thinking about this really over the top lavish adult, dangerous, um, you know delicious burger that my uncle Lou would make for my brother and me on nights when when they were babysitting us, and i just I felt the weight of this this kind of pent up joy in the lives of these two men who couldn 't really live as they would have chosen to but still packed the life that they did have with so much, um, you know, so much, so much joy, so much pleasure, so much just happiness to be, to be able to, to be with each other. Um, So, so that was really the, that kind of burger became the, the sort of symbol to me of a kind of expression of, of queer identity.
2: Right. Well, it's so interesting because it's it almost feels twofold in this book. Like there are so many ways that you kind of identify um, that beard's queerness, like trickles down into all of American food. But then it also sounds like when you talk about it and being a young queer chef and cook it, it almost sounds like there's also a recognition of like being part of a legacy um, and like having ancestors in this space in a way. I don't know if it feels that way for you.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think about ancestors a lot. I mean, I, for someone of my generation um, you know, the experience of being gay and coming out um, I mean, you know, I had my sort of gay uncles Pat and Lou, but but I but I lost them, uh, you know, long before I became an adult. You know, I was twelve or thirteen or something like that. So, you know, pretty much just as I probably would have needed them to talk about my own sexuality, they were they were gone from 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 my life. And the experience of a lot of people, a lot of queer people of my generation, is that we had absolutely no no elders no like mentors no nobody in our lives who could help us who could tell us that what we were feeling that what i was feeling was was something that they had struggled with in a different generation um so i think about ancestors a lot i i i think about how you know for, for several generations of queer people we've 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 really had to discover things on our own and so for me you know part of writing about James Beard's life was really trying to kind of, in a way, honor an ancestor, you know, honor like a queer food ancestor and really um, understand, understand his life, um, understand all of the dynamics that were happening around, um, you know, around queer expression for his generation. And, you know, he being one of the most, sort of famous food people in America at a time when he had to code so much of his queer experience, um, that it was something that only kind of a close circle of friends around him knew or fully knew, um, you know, that was, that was really a way of understanding history, understanding queer history and kind of understanding my own, you know, my own ancestors in the, in the space.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is not the only or first biography on James Beard, but but your central thesis to it is very different, and I and I also think your role as a writer that you just articulated of like I'm I'm writing to honor an ancestor in a way and to really more deeply understand this person through this lens. It does feel very new, I would say. I wonder. I guess how did you articulate that when you were pitching the book around? Of like, I'm going to write a a James Beard biography, and this (laughs) is the lens. Like, yeah, I I just wonder what that process was like.
3: Well, um, you know, first of all, I should say that I had a really great editor, Melanie Tortoroli, who was completely supportive of of kind of where my research went Mm -hmm. and where the manuscript went. Um, Norton, the publishing company, acquired my book just shortly before melanie uh, joined so she kind of inherited my book and the my my book's pitch you know definitely acknowledged james beard's queerness and it described how i was planning to write pretty extensively about queerness and sexuality in the in the life of james beard as i did more research that part of the biography really grew um, and it became really kind of a central focus of the book. Um and I just recall Melanie sort of saying, you know, you're you're sort of headed in a in a slightly different place than your proposal suggested. But you know, I you know completely support you in this. You know, this is this is fascinating. This is this is this is exactly right. Um, and you know, the more I think partly for me, you know, I I, I've kind of grown up in a space cooking in in professional kitchens and then being a writer where I felt I haven't always felt that I was free or welcome to express fully who I was, you know, often earlier when I was cooking um, and I wrote about this in a piece called um, Straight Up Passing, this kind of weird phenomenon, you know, even in nominally safe kitchens for queer people, the space has been such an unwelcoming and even homophobic environment that there's a lot of self-protection going on. Um, So I think I felt that generally in in my work and in my life. And the more that I've been free to really kind of let my let my research and let my writing go where it, where it would, it's really opened up more affirmingly queer avenues than the place where I was starting. So, you know, it's also been um, a kind of process of self-awareness for me personally of kind of writing this and letting the sort of queer, queer content really bloom.
2: Yeah. I, I wonder, so for folks that haven't read, the book yet and are maybe just learning as I did with your article in 2013, that, that James Beard was gay um, or that don't know very much about him at all. I I wonder if you could distill down sort of an introduction to James Beard, much like you do in the book for someone who might not really be aware aware of like who you're talking about or why their queerness matters.
3: Yeah. I think, um, I think, if anyone has heard of James Beard, it's probably because of the James Beard Awards, which are the kind of preeminent um, kind of chef and restaurant awards in the United States, and often described as the Oscars of food. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, they they confer a lot of status on on chefs and also, you know, writers and filmmakers and that who who, who receive them. So that's that's probably the way that, that people know the name of James beard. Um, James beard the person uh, he was uh, born in 1903 and died in 1985. He was born in Portland, Oregon. and really he, um, he was known for primarily for writing cookbooks and also for teaching cooking classes uh, at a time when cooking classes were were pretty rare. Um, he lived most of his life in New York City. He lived in Greenwich Village, a couple of blocks from the Stonewall Inn. <laughs> and he um, was part of a, it was called, a, you know, the gourmet movement in the United States. Uh, that started in like the 1930s. It started before James Beard became active in food. And, you know, American food was not that good. Um, I, I mean, mainstream American food, the food that you know, Americans self-consciously ate the food that they cooked from, you know, cookbooks that they might have had. It was just was not that good. Um, food corporations early on had really dominated um, American food, and so the cookbooks that Americans bought tended to be not written by individual authors, but they were what's called kitchen bibles, you know, like the Betty Crocker cookbook. So they didn't have a Individual voice; they didn't have individual personality behind them. That started to change in the 1930s. Um, M.F.K. Fisher was really one of the great proponents of Americans really finding pleasure in food. You know, Americans are always like afraid. There's kind of Puritan idea that food should not be pleasurable. (laughs) Um, And James Beard really, really worked to change that. So, starting with his cookbooks, um, he he really urged Americans to buy better ingredients. You can see the roots of like the farm to table movement in James Beard, where he would, you know, tell people to try to buy from farmers and try to buy eggs that were, you know, laid by chickens that got to run around a farm. Um, And he was able to really kind of sell this with his personality. He was very large, like physically. um, And he just had this this like, larger-than-life presence of somebody who loved to eat and drink, uh, who was passionate about it. And his image was kind of asexual, I guess, or non-sexual. Um, he was sort of like a, like an old bachelor professor. He was called the dean of American cookery. Um, and so he, he very much cultivated a kind of non-sexual personality for himself. Um, at, the, at the same time that he was urging Americans to really, you know, embrace food that was filled with, like, pleasure and, like, sensuality and enjoyment. Um, and, of course, you know, he, he couldn't talk about himself because, you know, especially after World War II, it was just really a brutal time to be queer in America. You know, you could just easily be arrested, even for something as innocent as a man touching another man's arm in a bar or a woman putting your arm around another woman in a bar. Um, You could get thrown out of the bar. You could get arrested for lewdness. So it was a really brutal time. uh, And so, you know, really queerness had to go, had to go underground.
2: Right. And he had, I mean, his queerness was so, like throughout his career, he was both very careful to hide it. And in moments where he crossed that line, was like quickly put in his place. You write about, you know, he was ousted for from gourmet for being too queer. He had editors kind of shift his voice away from something campy and right kind of tongue-in-cheek to that more professorial voice like that was very much a persona that was shaped
3: yes 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 exactly and it was it was a not you know you can see in a way that that well that very much kind of mirrors america's broader cultural um shift um you know james wrote his first cookbook in 1940 his second one in 1941 called cook it outdoors and in that book you really see his sort of weird, campy, like super playful, you know, he kind of describes like two girls go camping and, you know, he can't, you know, he doesn't say that they're um, a queer couple, but, you know, he sort of strongly hints it. Right. Didn't
2: he want to call it doing it outside? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, um, <laughs> you know, he, he sort of talks about garlic in that book, um, you know, where he sort of makes, makes a slight joke about garlic being like a rough housing like a roughhousing man. It's like, you know, they're fun to have around occasionally, but you, know, you probably don't want them around all the time. And so after World War II, things culturally in America, you know, the, the, the sort of door for playful sexual expression, which had been somewhat open in the 1930s, um, really, really slammed, slammed shut. And then you see, you see James take on this kind of bow-tied, tweed-wearing authority on food And also he starts writing for uh, a men's magazine. It's like this strapping like adventure magazine called Argosy and he becomes the food columnist and they, they even change his name instead of James Beard. They, they call him Jim Beard because you know, it sounds more,
0: (laughs) it sounds more rugged. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Um, You know, he's, he's still writing about the same food um, but it's it's all about framing him in this acceptable way because for american publishing and for america generally the idea of a you know a gay sort of <laughs> you know fairy um authority on food this 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 could just not this could never float um so he really does have to kind of navigate this career and at the same time that he's widely Uh, acknowledged as really one of the few people who knows most about food and drink in America and can teach Americans how to cook. At the same time, his, his actual life, you know, he spends almost all of it in a close circle of queer friends in Greenwich village. And so in a, in a small world of New York food media, you know, it would, was an open secret that he was gay, but it was, it was just a third rail. Like you would not, it it could not be acknowledged publicly.
2: Yeah. Well, and when you write about this kind of like asexuality, asexual persona that he was shaped into and, and in some ways, you know, occupied for safety, you also say like, that he writes about, Oh, I only love food. And all of the emotion that he had to express food was kind of the only way to do that. And so it's so interesting because to me, it feels like that is just then filling the food with queerness.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the irony. Um, And, and, you know it's something something similar was happening in other realms in like America's cultural life you know music and certainly theater you know where queer people were really kind of writing America's cultural cultural identity um at the same time that that they had to you know were in the, this small tightly um circumscribed realm and so much of of james's food so much of what he's telling americans about what to eat about how to eat about how to entertain you know parties party you know how to how to host a great cocktail party all of that was steeped in 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 his queer reality in his queer experience um and to the general public, they kind of never would have suspected or recognized that. Um, You know, so for instance, he, you know, before he wrote his first cookbook, he kind of became a kind of house host for um, this kind of wealthy, closeted New York businessman who, you know, hosted very discreet gay cocktail parties um, often. And sort of James beard goes to kind of live with him in his Greenwich Village apartment, his large Greenwich Village apartment um, and you know really becomes the host of these cocktail parties you know makes makes food to pass around, makes these delicious little snacks and makes you know delicious cocktails to serve. He really becomes a host for these, Uh, you know, very discreet gay apartment parties.
2: Right. Everything he was teaching Americans about how to hold parties was rooted in this, this gay party scene in Greenwich Village. And I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking back to the piece that you wrote and just the title of it, of America, Your Food is So Gay. And this thesis, I can see it being a little bit Confrontational to straight people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, I, I wonder how you respond when someone says, like, the only thing that matters is the food, or like, what does it matter who someone's sleeping with when we're judging the food they make? Or I, I wonder how you react to those. I get those comments, so I wonder how you <laughs> react. To
3: right. Yeah, exactly. Um right on social media, like you know, stick to the food, you know, um
2: yeah exactly. yeah,
3: you know you know, you know food food is food is incredibly complex, um and you know food is such food and cooking are such an expression of you know so many things, you know, of course, class, caste, gender, of course um all of these things, and i think um i think. You know, historically, we now have lost perspective on what food was like, what food in the United States, in many places, in most places, was was like before, before you know, M.F.K. Fisher and James Beard and um, Craig Claiborne and all of these kind of great shapers of modern food culture, and just so many assumptions about the the way that we eat. You know, in the m- mid-1950s, you know, it's it's the height of the Cold War and there's this idea of this, you know, American exceptionalism, that, you know, American capitalism is the greatest system the, the, the world has ever known, and socialism, certainly communism, are kind of evil. And, you know, James Beard writes this essay for Re- Re- Reader's Digest, which was a really influential magazine at the time, um, called, is America's food good? <laughs> um, and, you know, at the, at the very height of this, what was seen as a revolution in America was, you know, distribution and kind of massive agriculture and how you could go to like a mega supermarket anywhere in America and find, you know, strawberries or tomatoes in January. And this was, you know, seen as a great achievement and, um, and you know beard sort of challenges this, and so his message, which I see as kind of and I hope the book shows that is rooted in queerness, which is that um, this appreciation of of flavor that this kind of reorienting and you know American experience around sensuality around pleasure um, around eating as a as a way of bringing Bringing people together around the table. Time
2: for a quick break. Back in a minute.
1: All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, There are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of Food Radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash newshow.
2: Welcome back to Queer a the Table. This question is a, a wild hypothetical. I don't know if you know, but I wonder if you think that James Beard either did extend that to himself, like, in other words, saw his queerness as central to his cooking, um, or if he would, had circumstances been different and, and he was, you know, made it past kind of the Stonewall era.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think he absolutely saw himself and his queer circle as, as absolutely the as, you know, tastemakers, as 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 you know, almost like a, a superior group of people who are into food, who knew what was good, who knew how to enjoy it, and could you know, and in his case, could sort of communicate that more broadly. You know, when he was um you know in in the kind of nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties at Greenwich Village, often on kind of Sundays was kind of known that you could drop by james beard's house you know if you're a friend of his, you could drop by his house and there'd be uh, this kind of extended brunch going on you know I think partly he'd be um testing dishes, but it was also just a completely relaxed social activity, and you know he saw it as definitely queer, pretty much almost everyone who would be there his friends would be queer. And, you know, this was a place where food was disconnected from family. You know, food was um, an intensely kind of social expression and a way that, um, and a social expression in a, in a place, you know, Greenwich Village, that was one of the most important places for queer migration in America in the 20th century. Um, you know, this idea of those generations of Americans who couldn't express themselves, who couldn't be queer in the towns and smaller cities where they lived. And so, you know, of course, would go to San Francisco or Chicago or New York uh, and gravitate to places where there was some measure of safety. So I think James really did see what he was doing um, and his circle of friends as being, you know, you know, specifically queer and that they were cultural tastemakers.
2: Do you think that he was ever trying to, like, subtly through food or writing or cooking classes, advocate in any kind of way for more acceptance around queer folks? I
3: think, you know, I think perhaps he might have fantasized about doing that, but, uh, you know, he was also, you know, for his... for as much as, as he is a, a this kind of great figure of queer food expression in the 20th century, um he was he was also very conflicted about his own sexuality. And you know, James's life from you know, college was really ruled by this fear of being exposed, uh of being ruined, of being shamed. Um and he and he really carries that through his entire life.
2: Because he was so incredibly private um you know you you have this like really detailed section around the preparations um and and arrangements for after he died if someone was going to come in and clean his apartment and just make sure there wasn't any almost evidence yeah. of queerness <clears throat> and I wonder how how you went about Researching the book, and how that felt to you know be writing this after his death. Um.
3: yeah, um, you know early on i, I um, in, when I started my research, uh, or was kind of at the beginning of it the summer of 2017, uh, I went to an art exhibit, and it was it, it was about queer archaeology, you know, about artists who were kind of uncovering you know, evidence of queerness that was just kind of, kind of, you know, kind of hidden, kind of barely hidden in the landscape. Um, And it was curated uh, by Avram Finkelstein. And in his statement, I, I, I was really struck by um, by his kind of assertion that as queer people, we're kind of forced to be archeologists that because, so much of our experience and so much of our history has been erased. Um, you know, society hasn't, you know, mainstream society has not wanted us wanted to know about us. They've wanted us to die off. They've wanted us to go away. They've they're really invested with us staying in the closet, staying in the staying in our place. Um, that the role of the the artist in this case uh, is to be an archaeologist is to uncover. These traces, you know, and so I thought of that, you know, I thought of the research of James Beard's queer life um, as sort of looking so deeply at the materials uh, until I felt I could see the erase marks. (laughs) I could see the things that had been erased and I could um, try to follow those traces. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, for instance, you know, James Beard had a partner, Gino Cofacci, for for 30 years. And, you know, as I said, James traveled a lot. Sometimes Gino went with him, but often he didn't. Um, And so, you know, he, I knew that he, he and Gino would write letters to each other. You know, it was too, too expensive for people to make phone calls, um, you know, from, from, from New York to Europe. So they would have written letters and, you know, maybe some of those letters exist, but I don't, I wasn't able to find them. And I talked to people who had worked for James, who knew James in the 1970s, and they said, oh yes, he was he was very unsentimental. you know, he'd receive a letter and he would he would he would throw it straight into the trash. And I kind of accepted that at face value for a while. and then I heard this huge <laughs> this huge bell went off in my head and it was like, ah, this is this is this is this is part of just him um, kind of erasing himself, um, you know, sort of, you know, getting rid of anything that might be quote unquote incriminating. Um, And at the same time in my research, I felt, I felt a kind of, I felt an obligation to his, to his memory. Um, You know, I felt like for whatever reason that it was my duty and responsibility to really let him kind of express his authentic, you know, identity, you know, that he, he wasn't able to do, to do it himself while he was alive. Um, And that now it was really kind of incumbent on me to kind of restore that kind of dignity to him, (laughs) you know, to give him um, a much fuller, um, more, more kind of authentic um, life story than, than he's had.
2: Listening back to my interview with John this week sort of gutted me. This special, magical something that happens when queers are crammed together around a table on mismatched chairs dragged from all corners of the apartment. I am missing it so much right now, especially with the weather turning. If you want to read yourself into that feeling, I can't recommend John's book enough. It came out a couple of weeks ago, and you can buy it at your favorite local bookstore. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo was designed by Natalie Uduella, and the theme song was written and performed by Denali Gillespie. You can find and reach out to us on Instagram, at Queer the Table. And if you want to support the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Queer the Table is powered by Simplecast and is hosted by Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.